Our passage this morning is in Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 4, and we're going to look at a very short parable in Mark's Gospel. It's actually also in Matthew's and Luke's Gospels as well. In chapter 4 of Mark, it appears at verse 30 and runs through verse 32. We're continuing our, our series in the history of redemption, the story of the Gospel in all of Scripture from the start to the finish And we're now up to the kingdom of Jesus. The kingdom of Jesus is one of the most confusing and difficult pieces of theology to discuss and talk about with any clarity. And for a number of reasons, it tends to be paradoxical and mysterious. And we'll see that this morning as we go through. But here's what I would ask you to keep in mind as we get started. Because it is crucial to Christian theology and the gospel story and the Christian life. Remember, if you would, that the kingdom is not a location on a map. Not yet. It will be, but it's not now. So for now, it's a condition of the heart. It exists as a relation. How do you relate to what God is doing in the world and the way in which He's working in the world? That's the kingdom. Young Christians, young theologians, as we go through this parable, listen closely as you have lunch with your family later today or sometime later this week maybe in family worship, I want you to try to say the parable back in your own words. And then, if you're really paying attention this morning, you can say something about what you think it means. What was Jesus saying when he told us this parable? This is the good news of the kingdom in Mark's gospel. And Jesus said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. And when it's sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Let's pray and we'll begin. Lord Jesus, even on a Sunday morning when the words of life wash over us and through us, we can feel death bearing down on us. We carry it in our hearts, we pursue it through the week, and we play with it day in and day out. And coming together as your people in your name to hear your gospel is like you standing outside Lazarus' tomb and calling him out. You are the Lord of life, which means you're also the Lord over death. So be Lord over our death. And speak to us your words of grace like light that shatters darkness. Like life that extinguishes death. And if you'll do all of these things for us, we will give you thanks. We ask it in the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit. Amen. Would you be seated? When Jesus came into the world, He came to bring His kingdom. It's important that we have said it that way. He came to bring His kingdom, not establish it. His kingdom was already here. So to say that Jesus came to establish His kingdom seems to say that God wasn't already 
the sovereign authority over all things, which he was. It would seem to say that he didn't already have a kingdom, which he did. So Jesus came to make God's reign and rule from heaven over all the earth more explicit, more outspoken, more definite, more expansive. But Jesus had competition. There were plenty of other kingdoms already here as well. There was the kingdom of Satan, made of God's glory, stolen and vandalized. If you jump chapters to chapter 3 in Mark's Gospel, you'll find Jesus explaining that He's come into the world to tie up a strong man and plunder his house. Satan is the strong man and he's in for it. There was Caesar's kingdom spreading Roman culture as the superior culture through global politics and world domination. Not to mention, there was the kingdom that belongs to every man, woman, and child who has ever lived. The violent kingdom of self multiplied millions of times over. And because Jesus brings His kingdom in the midst of all these others, because Jesus manifests and shows His kingdom in the midst of and against all of these others, His kingdom shows up as a mystery. And that's what makes His kingdom so incredibly difficult. Robert Hutchins Goddard was 17 years old when he found his life's work, or to be more exact, his life's work found him. He'd gone out into the backyard after supper one evening. It was the evening of October the 19th. And he climbed into the limbs of the cherry tree in his backyard and he looked up. And that was it. One look into the heavens and his life was forever changed because he saw the stars spattered across the night. He'd seen them before, but he'd never looked at them like this. He'd never seen them as an ambition or a destination. Maybe it was being up in the tree and not on the ground. Maybe five feet closer to them was five feet close enough. But whatever triggered it, Robert Hutchings Goddard decided then and there that he would spend the rest of his life working for manned spaceflight. But when he decided this in the limbs of the cherry tree, he didn't jump down from its branches and run into the family's farmhouse and phone up his best friend or his girlfriend and tell the person on the other end of the line that he'd figured out how he would spend the rest of his days. Because while the telephone had been invented, there was only about three telephones per 1,000 people in the U.S. at the time. It was only used for business and commerce. He didn't jump out of the tree and get into the family's car and drive to the county library to do research on jet propulsion and gravitational equations that would have to be overcome in order to reach orbit because Henry Ford hadn't unveiled his Model T yet. And he couldn't buy a cheap plane ticket and fly to Washington, D.C. and visit the National Aeronautic and Space Museum to put wings to his dream because it was a full three years before Orville and Wilbur Wright flew Kitty Hawk. At the age of 17, in the year 1899, 
Robert Hutchings Goddard dedicated his life to space travel. But to do it, he had to see far beyond the world he lived in. To do it, he had to see what no one else around him dared to see. And the kingdom of God is like climbing into a tree and looking into the stars and seeing what everyone else around you can't. And what you see is not that it's possible for us to launch our way into heaven, but rather we don't have to do that. It gets better than that even. The kingdom of heaven comes to us. The kingdom of heaven is earthbound. And so, when Mark opens his gospel, he doesn't open with a birth narrative. No stable, no manger, no star. He opens with an emphasis on the kingdom. There are some preliminaries for Mark. John the Baptist out in the desert yelling red-faced at people to get their hearts ready because Messiah was coming to occupy them. And Jesus coming to be baptized by John, to be publicly revealed as Messiah, and then going out into the wilderness, the wild places, to be tempted by Satan for 40 days. Since his ministry will end with his conquest over Satan, his ministry begins with it too. But then after that, at verse 14, in the middle of chapter 1, Mark is off and running because he shows Jesus on a preaching junket. And everywhere Jesus goes, he says the same thing. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe the gospel. In a Jewish law court, when the herald called out the decisions of the court the very act of proclaiming it was considered putting the decisions into effect, making them actual and binding. And the preaching and the proclamation of Jesus is exactly the same. Really what Jesus is saying is, because I'm here, the kingdom is here. I've not only brought it with me, but I've brought it in me. I am the kingdom. But still, there is the mystery of the kingdom that believers find so frustrating. How on earth could the kingdom be so hidden from so many when every time Jesus opens His mouth throughout the Gospels, He's pushing His kingdom? How could He be so verbal about it and it be so invisible? Here's why and here's how. When Jesus brings his kingdom, he brings it in judgment and grace, but not necessarily in equal measure. When Jesus brings his kingdom, he is manifesting it and revealing it with judgment and grace. Jesus judges and condemns as empty and enemy all rival kingdoms. Because they're kingdoms that are not built on God's perfections and sufficiency, and they're not filled with God's attributes, and they don't work for His glorious ends, and yet they still call for utter and complete devotion and worship. Jesus has to oppose them, and He has to put them down. But at the same time He's judging all of these rival kingdoms as worthless and doomed, He rules in grace by calling His loved elect out of their many wrong kingdoms to live in His. If Jesus had brought His kingdom unveiled, 
unmuted in full glory, it would be all judgment and no grace. It is for judgment certain and sure, but put on hold. It's for grace present and active that the kingdom operates by our minds and our eyes under the surface. You find it frustrating, but it saved your life. He judged your kingdom and called you safely out of it by His grace. Which reminds me of the story of Crazy Larry. Crazy Larry was a national I met at a surfside pool on a South American beach. He was the pool steward. And he was walking by with a stack of fresh towels. And he stopped and wanted to talk. And I had no choice because he was blocking my son. I know Larry for 10 minutes, and Larry says to me, Hey, man, you know what you should do? And I said, I have no earthly idea, but I'm dying to hear it because I'm sure this is good, whatever it is. Tell me what I should do. You buy a resort. Larry, are you trying to sell me a timeshare? Because if you're trying to sell me a timeshare, I'm going to push you in the pool. No, 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 no timeshare. You buy a resort. Three, abandoned on the beach. He wasn't lying. The resorts lined the water's edge. Some of them were opulent and over the top. Some of them were simple and modest. Some of them were boarded up and foreclosed with for sale signs stuck in the sand. I walked past them every morning. There was one that had a mini golf course with the bright colored paint chipping in the sun and a giant cement cast whale crumbling in the heat. And there was a little chapel set nearest to the water with a stained glass window and the Holy Spirit descending in the form of a dove. It was someone's abandoned dream of campy fun mixed with Pentecostal revivalism. And Larry wanted me to buy it. And I said to him, Larry, you're crazy, which is where he got the name I gave him, Crazy Larry. No, not crazy. You buy a resort, you hire me, you make it work. Larry, the only thing I can make work down here is a sunburn. And maybe another one of these drinks with a paper umbrella. Beyond that, I'm out. That's what the kingdom is supposed to feel like to us. Listen, I have dreams of disappearing. The, the expatriates used to call it going native. You'd go off on vacation and, and you wouldn't be able to find your way to come back home. But in my mind, as I think and dream about it, it's much more simple than what Larry was proposing. To, to see the kingdom at work, to understand the grace and the judgment of Jesus working together to Feel how they come together in perfect unity. It's like understanding that I have no inflated ambition to overextend myself and go bankrupt for some failed version of paradise. The the judgment and the grace of the kingdom of Jesus together allow us to see that our kingdoms can't possibly work, so we leave them behind to be boarded up and to crumble. And at the same time, we feel the warm 
call and the irresistible pull into the kingdom of Jesus that can't fail. And that gives us the last little piece of the mystery of the hidden kingdom. The kingdom is revealed to those who are receiving its grace. Now it's about the hiddenness of this being revealed kingdom that Jesus tells this parable. Now here's the setup that he gives us from Mark chapter 3. Jesus has been making the headlines very consistently in all the Galilean papers. Every morning around the breakfast table, Mary and her sons are getting more and more red-faced because they don't understand what Jesus is doing, and so they can't account for it, and they can't explain it to their neighbors and their co-workers around the office. So in verse 21 of chapter 3, Mary and Jesus' half-brothers try to stage an intervention, and they have speeches all worked out. His brothers would say something like, you have a problem, drop the Messiah complex. How are you so narcissistic that you've gathered a movement around you? You're a carpenter for God's sake. Come home. Stop making a scene. You're killing our mother. Can't you see this? Mary's plea to Jesus would sound softer, but it would sting even more. Look, I found this nice facility in the foothills, and they have art classes and group discussion sessions, and you can talk about your feelings. And I don't know, maybe you could just go and stay for a couple of months, and we'll come and visit. The rest would do you good. You get the idea that if Joseph were still alive, Joseph, who was visited by angels in dreams, he'd tell the rest of the family, leave Jesus alone. He's doing what he's supposed to be doing even if we don't understand it. And by the way, we didn't exactly understand His coming into the world in the first place. Stop listening to the papers. Stop listening to the people. Listen to Jesus, Joseph would say, as he drained his coffee mug and pushed away from the breakfast table. In the very next section of verses, Mark says that the scribes, the barristers of religious law, came down from Jerusalem to launch a smear campaign against Jesus that would have made the super PACs of an election year look like softies. Oh, he's got a demon, they said. That's how he does all of his tricks. Satan is his father. So Jesus gathers all of his disciples around him, gathers his twelve, and he says, well, of course they're going to say that I've lost my mind and that I have a demon. They don't understand the kingdom, and you can't afford not to. How can I explain the kingdom to you? The kingdom is like a mustard seed. You can barely see it, but when it's sown, the eyes of faith can't miss it. It's everywhere. Now, you may not know a lot about mustard, but it's a weed. Once you sow it, you can't unsow it. In many cases, it looks like a shrub. It looks like a brush. It's ground cover, but it can grow as tall and as high as six feet. That's why in Matthew's telling of the parable and Luke's too, Jesus talks about the mustard tree. Mark suggests the same by saying it's larger than all the other garden plants and it has large branches. But if Jesus is the kingdom, then he's talking about himself in the parable. I am the mustard seed. Nobody expects much of me. My family thinks I'm mad, though my mother should know better. An angel told her I would be God the Son in the flesh. 
And the scribes don't recognize my authority because they didn't impart it to me. They didn't put me in my office. I'm a rabbi without training. I have no diploma hanging on the wall. My life is supposed to be as unmessianic as everyone else's, only it's not. I am Messiah, and though no one expects anything much from me, that doesn't mean I will do nothing. Fair enough. For now, my kingdom is a mustard seed kingdom, but you'll see its reach and its power when I am sown. And right there, Mark has Jesus taking off in a dead sprint for the cross. The mention of the mustard seed being sown is Jesus predicting his death and all that will come from it. Jesus is claiming that he'll be planted and wildly, unstoppably productive in his death. That he's building his kingdom with a cross. And by his being sown in crucified suffering, he'll take over the garden. He'll fill up the earth with all that it's missing. He'll fill the earth with justice. Meaning, God's violent rejection of our violently rejecting him. He'll fill up the world with grace for our inability to throw off the heaviness of guilt. He'll fill up the world with embodied righteousness, traded out for embodied unbelief, and hearts as hard and hateful as beams and nails will be changed to hearts that hurt for the necessity of the cross, but they revel in it and sing and toast its wonder and its generosity at the same time. There wasn't a tree like that anywhere in God's garden to use the image of the parable. There wasn't a tree like that anywhere in the fallen, mutinous creation. And so God planted his own pleasing, prolific, spreading tree for himself in the sun. And the birds flocked to this tree. And you're the birds. Jews and Gentiles who believe that Jesus is the needed kingdom. And who find Shelter, they find shelter in Jesus' tree of death. That's a strange mashup of images. Birds are carefully chosen by Jesus here because birds are so easily frightened and they're entirely fragile. But in the parable, they land and they rest on something So brutal that's been turned beautiful because the tree Jesus planted is the promise that God's judgment for our sin is satisfied and it asks for nothing more. And on the other hand, God's grace for sinners is unsatisfied. It's insatiable. It asks only to give more of itself. By the end of the parable, Jesus is telling us I'm building my kingdom and you can build your life on it like the birds nest in the mustard tree. Who wouldn't want to be part of a kingdom where our gross failures and our deepest brokenness and our stone-cold contempt are not exploited and used against us, but they're atoned? The effect of a kingdom like that is birds become less fragile and they become far less frightened. Which brings us to the biggest mystery of them all. This is why Jesus brought his kingdom. This is where he kisses away our shattered psychology. The kingdom is hidden in the world, but the kingdom is not hidden in the life of the believer. 
In all of Jesus' kingdom parables in which something is hidden, eventually the hidden thing is unhidden. A treasure, a pearl, a coin, a wedding feast. No one on the guest list cares to attend because no one sees the point in it. The only way that I can think to measure the rule of the kingdom in our hearts and our lives is by this notion of unhiddenness. So let's say it this way. The kingdom of Jesus is the unhidden life. A life that's open, a life that invites scrutiny, a life that's examined, a life that's known. It's not sequestered behind closed doors. And here's the reason the kingdom pushes us to live like this. Our sin loves to hide. Our sin does its best work in hiding. It ravages our hearts most efficiently using stealth. Fruitfulness, on the other hand, the likeness of Jesus being worked in us, taking up more and more of the ground in us, The likeness of Jesus coming to us by the decree of Jesus through the supply of His Spirit mixed with our efforts and energies. That is our view of sanctification, by the way. Christ working in me, I am working. Fruitfulness. The likeness of Jesus isn't embarrassed or inconvenienced to be found out, to be walked in on. Nothing is lost for fruitfulness. Nothing is lost for the likeness of Jesus to be discovered suddenly. But that's not true for sin. And that's why we have all these little cover-up schemes that we aren't even fully aware of. We make them so elaborate. The nature of the kingdom and the experience of the kingdom means having less and less to hide. We don't have to hide our sin It's there, it's real, it's awful, it's terrible, it's ugly, but it's atoned. If there's no answer for your sin, you have no choice but to hide it. If there is not something in the world stronger than your sin and able to fully overcome it, you have no choice but to cover it up and to keep it buried. But if there is such a force, then hiding our sin makes no sense. With his cross, Jesus has publicly declared that your sin has no right to you. He has ruled in your favor against your sin, which is not the way you would expect it to work out when a bloody cross is put up with you in mind. But that's what he has done. When Jesus puts himself on his cross, he leaves your sin empty-handed, with no claim to you and no right to appeal the ruling, which means you have nothing left to be ashamed of and there is nothing to hide. You can answer to and admit to all of your sin with simple, straightforward, short answers. You can be brutally honest about your own sin because Jesus has been unhidden about His intentions for your sin And he's been unhidden about his intentions for you. And they are not the same. And there's no reason for us to hide our regeneration. There's no point in hiding our sin anymore and no need to hide our regeneration. The ways in which Jesus is making us alive in forgiveness 
and truthfulness and courageous purity, though so often we treat our regeneration as if it's privatized. By definition, by definition, to be regenerated, to be made alive again, means to be unburied, to come out. There is no hiding of regeneration if it is truly ours. The regeneration that Jesus has for you to enjoy and be filled with isn't secreted away somewhere in a vault to be broken into and smuggled out. His regeneration pours out to you endlessly from an open tomb. It's like Fort Knox with an endless supply of gold so there is no need for walls or doors or armed guards. You can just have as much of the stuff as you want. The good news for skeptics and Christians is all the same. The kingdom of Jesus means Jesus has exclusive rights to me, all of me. Jesus alone has the exclusive rights to my life and he rules over all of me with truth and love. And that means I have less and less to hide. I can live the kingdom life by living the unhidden life. There should actually be a time when you can parade your sin before others. Because it's a relic. It's like a curiosity you bought in a shop. Once this had some usefulness to me in life, but now it's fallen into misuse. It's obsolete. You should be able to parade your sin in front of others without your face flushing purple and your blood running cold or hot in your veins and your mouth going dry as you stammer, searching for for some excuse, some way to explain yourself. And the reason you can interact with your sin like this is Jesus isn't embarrassed by you. In his gospel, he gloats over his love for you. He gloats over you in his love. And he leaves no room for your sin to gloat anymore. And that's the mystery of the kingdom. That's why you can live unhidden. That's why you can be a bird perched on a cross. The science fair at our school came and went again this year, and my fifth grader did an experiment on multitasking. Does multitasking affect concentration? So she got ten of her classmates, ten fifth graders. They were all fifth grade girls from our school, so intellectually they were about in the same range. No great disparity. There's the control for the experiment. And she gave them a math test. They had seven minutes to finish the test. While they were taking the test, she kept introducing variables to try to distract them. There was a CD playing in the background. She wanted to know, would anyone catch the piece of music that was playing on the CD? There was a centerpiece on the table. Would anyone notice it? One of the subjects was sitting at the table in a mismatched chair. Which subject was sitting in the mismatched chair? Could she be named by the other subjects? Halfway through the test, a man walked through the room, a stranger to all the subjects, carrying a prop. Would they notice the prop in his hand? On every page of the test, there was a picture that had nothing to do with math. On every page of the test, there was a nonsense sentence broken up across the page. Would they pay attention to the content of both the picture and the sentence? When the math test was over, she gave them a second test to see which of the distracting variables they noticed. Here's what she learned. 
fifth grade girls aren't good at math. <laughs> Not as good as you would hope. China will rule the world. Learn Mandarin. What she found was that her test subjects weren't able to concentrate on either of the two sets of information. They couldn't concentrate on the main task, the math test, and they couldn't concentrate on the distractions either. But every single test subject got a higher score on the distractions test, which means that each of them was paying more attention to the distractions than to the main task. Meaning further, you can't multitask even though you think you can. You're no good at it. You're not going to believe me. You're going to keep doing it, but you're not any good at it. Because your brain wasn't designed for it. Your brain was designed to give its attention and its energies to one thing. And your brain is incredibly proficient and efficient at the tasks that it gives itself to. But it's not meant to juggle many at one time. And here's the real discovery. Your heart was made for one kingdom. Only one. You can only have one kingdom. And Jesus bringing his kingdom was meant to force your decision. So which will it be? Will it be your judged failing kingdom filled with self or the gracious kingdom filled with the attributes of Jesus that can't fail? And here's the other discovery. The kingdom that you side with, the kingdom that calls you, the kingdom that catches your heart will be obvious to everyone. The kingdoms that we belong to, Jesus says, are unhidden. Be unhidden in mine. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, we fill our mouths with dust. We have nothing good to say of ourselves. We cannot approve of ourselves using our own righteousness. And so when we open to speak for ourselves, dust pours out. That is until you change our hearts with your gospel. When we open our our mouths to speak for ourselves. Living as the subjects of Jesus in his kingdom of light and love. When we open our mouths to speak of ourselves then. We're able to say something entirely more full. I'm not worthy but I am loved eternally. And I have nothing to fear because of the love that I have from the Savior King. The wonder of the gospel is that you take our mouths filled with dust and you fill them with songs of praise, prayers of need, prayers of cries for help, prayers of rejoicing. You take our mouths filled with dust And you fill them instead with bread and wine and joy. So as we eat and drink at your table once again this morning, remind us that our sin is real and awful and ugly and terrible. 
It hurts. It hurts us. It hurts all those around us. But it's atoned. And our sin has lost its claim and rule over us. We now, by faith, live under the rule of Jesus. So give to us your righteousness and by it, give us strength. Allow us to desire practical righteousness for ourselves. And fill us with your wine, the cup of joy, the cup of peace. And let us know that all of our sins, as bad as they may be, they don't need to be hidden. Because Jesus is more than adequate to deal with them. And because of the way he deals with them in forgiveness and love, we can look at them as powerless, worthless things. We can laugh at them and we can rejoice over the way Jesus has loved us over them and against them and away from them. This is what we have to celebrate at the table. More grace because you have taken judgment and allow that grace to transform and change us. Now, church, along with the church, in every age, what is it that you say you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence He shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.